from 11FS. This is Fintech Insider News. Today, Fintech bosses accuse Starling Banks and Bowden of stifling innovation. Tencent invests in Monzo. And bye-bye BlackBerry. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up at 11FS and have a quick word from one of our sponsors. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Welcome to episode 592 of Fintech Insider. My name is Benjamin Ensor, and I'm joined on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Deepa Anakindi. Thank you for joining us, Deepa. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, indeed. Happy New Year to all our listeners. Um, And of course, as always, we're joined by some very special guests. Um, Making their first appearance on Fintech Insider News, we have Abba Newbury, Chief Marketing Officer of Habito. Abba, thanks for joining us on this uh, first show of the year. We'll get into your news announcement uh, later, but can you give listeners a very brief introduction to Habito? Yes. Hello, and thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, Habito, we're essentially a home buying platform. Um, So we are a mortgage broker. uh, We are a mortgage lender. um, And we also um, are a home buying service. So you can do all your legal work associated uh, with getting your mortgage and buying your home, surveying, uh, conveyancing, stuff like that through us. All through the comfort of your uh, mobile phone on your sofa. Fantastic. Thank you. And also making their FinTech Insider debut, we have Weezer Jalakasi, Vice President of Developer Relations at Chippercash. Weezer, lovely to have you on the show with us. Can you give us a brief introduction to you and to Chippercash? Oh, thank you, Benjamin and Deepa. It's a pleasure. Um, I'm Wiza. I head up DevRel at Chipper. We operate the largest smartphone-first uh, cross-border mobile money platform on the continent, serving over 5 million users in eight markets, make it super easy to move money around, make it super easy for people to access global markets, to access crypto, to access virtual and physical debit cards, and a whole lot of other features that we'll be announcing later this year. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. Okay, with that, let's get into the news. So our first story uh, comes from from the Times of London, um, which is that fintech bosses have accused Starling Banks and Bowden of stifling innovation. Anne Bowden, who, as many of you know, is the chief executive of Starling Bank in the UK, has been accused by 53 fintech company founders of stifling innovation after she said that Britain's open banking regime had failed. The founders, including the bosses of LendInvest, Sopa and Nested, wrote to members of parliament describing Bowdoin's comments during a Treasury Select Committee hearing as uncompetitive and typical of banks trying to thwart the future of innovation in financial services. Bowdoin had told MPs in October that open banking had not been a success for several reasons. She pointed to open banking not resulting in an increase in people switching their, their bank accounts and to the lack of business models to pay for and harness open banking data in a way that consumers want to use. The letter described these comments as a dramatic oversimplification of the situation, with open banking having the potential to unlock even more innovation. Bowden, to her credit, on Twitter welcomed the debate and said she was happy to brainstorm with these open banking entrepreneurs to see if I can help. So... Is this is this a storm in their teacup? Is this a healthy debate? Is she really stifling innovation? Um, Abba, I'm tempted to come to you first. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, what do you make of this story? I mean, I think a lot of what gets written right is is, is clickbait, and it's like the headline, and and um, it's useful to have like the only like big name. Uh, you know, uh, fintech, female entrepreneur, go up against the guys, if that helps, you know, that that really helps in terms of clickbait. Um, How do we view open banking? Like, yes, 
we see the um, opportunities in mortgages in terms of like frictionless application and making it easy for customers being infinite. Um, that said, open banking is not understood by uh, customers. Um, so whilst the opportunity I think is great, um, at the very least, if you look at it from a consumer perspective, open banking is a terrible name. Open banking sounds like people can access your bank account. Um, everyone can see what you're doing. So I think, you know, like it's it's beholden on us as a as a fintech community to like get together and and work together on this because yes, for sure, the opportunity is infinite, but customers are not coming with us um right now. And 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 Anne is right to flag. Um, that that you know the opportunity is not being realised by uh, customers, and we've got a huge education job to do. One in five um, uh, consumers in the UK declare themselves actively declare themselves as financially illiterate. So you know we have to be you know honest with ourselves about um, how we best need to uh, communicate open banking, which we've not done collectively as an industry very well at all. So you're sort of saying that actually, and and Bowden is 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 right to say it hasn't been a success in some ways because we haven't, as an industry, given it the right title, and customers haven't really understood what its potential is. Yes, but she's she's wrong to say that it's decelerating innovation. Like it's our job as the kind of like the holders of innovation to help that communication happen. What, what do you think, Deeper? I mean, the, the thing that struck me here was, you know, Anne Bowden being accused of stifling innovation, which for someone who's set up, you know, one of the UK's most successful new banks seems a bit harsh. Um, do, you, do you think there's any truth to that suggestion? So I think there's a couple of things. First of all, Ab, I totally agree with the education piece. I think that's absolutely fundamental. Um, I think on this, the second uh, piece of that would be around, I think open banking is not, it was never designed, I guess, to be a silver bullet. I see it as more of kind of the start of a wide sweeping change across the whole retail banking space. And we're now four years on from the start of open banking or kind of the um, PSD2 coming in. And we've not really seen any kind of real shakeup in the industry. And I guess that was what it was trying to drive at. So We've not really seen a kind of disaggregation of the value chain. We've not really seen any kind of traditional um, business banking models change or shake up. And so that kind of optimistic view of what open banking could do in the industry hasn't really taken shape. Um, And I think if you compare the digital shift in other industries like media, for example, we've seen a real, an actual shift in, in how products and services are bundled. And so we haven't seen the equivalent within financial services. And so if we're looking at, you know, we take this comment and and actually try and benchmark it to the question of, you know, has success or has open banking actually created that new business model? And if that's what the measure of success is, then I think I'd I'd largely agree. Feels to me a bit as if they've they've sort of picked on slightly the wrong target in, you know, because I think there have been, um, you know, there are certainly a perception that some of the traditional banks in the UK have made it harder, that, you know, the lack of standards and so on has made it much more difficult for fintechs to use open banking. Abba, a great point you've made about the naming of it. It seems to me there are some villains potentially around, uh, you know, whether those villains are individuals or, or you know, processes or legacy systems um, that, 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 that Anne Burden isn't. Weezer, I'd love to come to you on a, get a little bit more of a sort of international perspective as, as sort of three Brits um, chat away about open banking in the UK. Um, as you look at it from an outsider's perspective and from some of the markets that you're more familiar with, do you think open banking is sort of driving innovation in the UK? How, what are you seeing in, in some of the markets in Africa? Would you like to have what, what where we've got to in the UK? We were, we were talking, chatting earlier about Nigeria. Um, what's your perspective? Yeah, I think, I, I think it's really, uh, it's a convenient scapegoat to point at a specific individual and say that they are stifling innovation. Like, what does that actually mean? I think they they have granted uh, Anne Bowden a lot of power with that statement. Uh, I guess she's like in charge of innovation for the entire country. <laughs> it's, it's a bit silly in my view. 
So I think there's like a, a few layers to unpack here. Uh, number one is that like, you know, open banking, uh, where it is as an industry globally today is still very much at a fundamental infrastructure layer. I as Visa, um, I'm a Monzo customer, a very happy Monzo customer, but I'm not going to like, you know, chat in the app and ask them for some open banking thing. It's up to us as an industry to build useful solutions that take advantage of that underlying infrastructure uh, in a way that is makes sense to the consumer. I don't think many people actually uh, even know what the implications of the technology are. I certainly agree with what Abba said around the branding thing. Um, open banking sounds really, really scary. And when you talk about it with people who aren't in the space, it's like, no, my, my bank account is closed because there's a culture of secrecy and privacy around banking for obvious reasons. I, I'm drawing parallels uh, with the rebranding of uh, crypto to Web3. <laughs> I think uh, maybe open banking might need something similar to, to, to get people more comfortable. But I really think it, it's, it's extremely early for anyone to be making uh, such conclusive statements about uh, whether or not the, the initiatives have actually failed. I think it will take quite a number of years before we start to see globally what the implications are uh, of an open banking ecosystem and how those uh, ecosystems uh, most especially interface with other parts uh, of the financial industry as a whole. Now, uh, outside of the UK, there's a lot of interesting stuff that's going on in the space, Nigeria, um, South Africa, Kenya, all have uh, private sector actors that are spearheading open banking initiatives. We don't quite see a lot of activity at a regulatory level, but consumers are now like you know starting to demand the ability and the flexibility to transfer data between accounts, and that's starting to look very interesting. Um, I do think that the lack of regulatory, I won't say interest, I'll say regulatory guidance <laughs> uh, on the matter represents potentially like an opportunity uh, for some African countries to be able to sort of like leapfrog uh, and make decisions around this. Um, I see a lot of progressive regulation coming out of South Africa. So South Africa uh, has what's known as the Intergovernmental Fintech Working Group. Um, and it's a, essentially a consortium of private and public sector actors who come together every so often and uh, make suggestions about what sort of regulations make sense for the industry. And if you look at uh, the most recent publication was a white paper around open banking regulation and what open banking regulation could look like in South Africa. It is pretty sophisticated and it's pretty robust. I think it's 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 far ahead of what I've seen in the United States. I can't comment authoritatively on the United Kingdom, but I do think that that's um, number one, an indicator of how early it is, and number two, an indicator of what potential uh, opportunities might exist uh, in in emerging markets where you know there's no legacy infrastructure to replace. Everything is being built from scratch. Super interesting. I, I definitely agree that it's early days. And I also think, you know, whether you see open banking as, as a success in any country or not is partly a question of what you expected to see um, and how quickly you expected to see it. Um, Abba, you mentioned clickbait earlier and at risk of being accused of clickbait myself. Um, do you or, or perhaps deeper think there was a gender angle here? I mean, Anne Bowden is obviously one of the most prominent women in fintech in the UK. The letter came from mostly men. Um, am I you know, is that important? Does that matter? Um, or is it just a good thing if it actually results in a wider debate because more people are engaged by the conversation? I mean, I think that I think that the, the stats were reported is important. So I think it was 47 uh, to three uh, fintech leaders being women versus um, men. Um and as I said, yeah, Anne has put herself out there as the as the female poster child for um I was gonna say fintech innovation, but I'm gonna let's say innovation. Um and so she therefore becomes a figurehead that um that the media um are want to take down or at least want to, you know, position her away uh, that is like different, different from. Uh, which isn't helpful at all mm. in any way, uh, shape or form. I don't know what you think, Deepa. I, I agree. I think I'd like to say that the, you know, the gender element doesn't matter. Unfortunately, I think it does. And the optics, as the numbers you just mentioned point out, it it, it doesn't paint a good picture, does it, that way? 
Um, but I think there is a more of a macro conversation to be had around fintech and the financial services industry, which I'm sure we've covered um, many times across the show. But, you know, I definitely think it's one of those things that every, every time we kind of have this conversation, it's it's another good reminder that, you know, more needs to happen. The conversation is not finished. There's more to be done. And, you know, I think across every firm, across every um, every organization, at every level, there's, you know, there is that conversation that needs to be had um, with some real action points taken. Well, we won't get more diversity in fintech without talking about it and, as you say, taking taking action. Okay, well, let's move on from um, a story involving one UK digital bank to a story involving another UK digital bank. So uh, this is that Chinese uh, tech giant Tencent has joined a number of other backers in a £3.3 billion uh, raise for Monzo. So this was reported in various media, including Sky News. So China's Tencent has subscribed to shares as part of a $100 million, uh, $74 million top-up to Monzo's latest funding round. Um, a source told Sky News that Tencent was investing in a minority of the $100 million capital injection. The Chinese company's involvement adds another prominent investor to the bank's uh, list of shareholders uh, weeks after it confirmed that uh, Kochu and the Abu Dhabi Growth Fund had become investors. Tencent has previously backed other European banking startups such as Germany's N26, as well as US tech companies, including Tesla and Snap. The 100 million top-up uh, funding takes the total amount raised in Monzo's latest round to $600 million or £444 million. Pounds. And Monzo claims to have seen a doubling in revenues in 2021, um, and has more than 5 million customers in total, with uh, still adding 100,000 each month. So is this uh, is this Monzo bouncing back? Um, what are people's takes on this? Um, Deepa, what do you think? Is this, is, this, is this good news? Is this a good thing that uh, Monzo will have Tencent as one of its backers? Um, or is, do you see any, do you have any reservations? I mean, it certainly seems to be the start of a new growth curve. Um, obviously, the stats that you just mentioned um, looks like you know things are bouncing back pretty quickly. And there's obviously some questions around Tencent and some of the ethics concerns around it. Um, and you know how how much we want to debate those on this is is up for question. But there certainly are some questions around it. Um, I know Monzo were fairly quiet about this, and this got requ- uh, reported on Sky News. Um, but it's not obviously got the kind of the pomp that certain that uh, previous funding rounds have had. What are the ethical concerns about Tencent? For, for I think you said ethical concerns for the, for, for listeners who are not fully aware of them. Obviously, need to be careful. <laughs> but uh, so reportedly, Tencent have been monitoring um, content posted by foreign users uh, on WeChat, which is, uh, one of its, its primary messaging, um, app, which is global, but obviously primarily used in Asia, um, to help it refine censorship on its platform back at home. Um, and I think there's been, there's been another couple of things that within that area. So obviously there's some political, um, there's a political angle to that. Um, and so I don't know whether that was the primary reason for kind of the the less of the press and the pomp around it, but I have to I have to assume that that's one of the reasons. Mm. I have some thoughts on that. Um, oftentimes, I I wonder how to think about the uh, Chinese political industrial complex. Uh, because on one hand, you know, these are essentially private businesses that have um, the same incentives as global investors anywhere else uh, to try and like develop uh, startup industries. And, um, you know, they, they do have quite a lot of capacity and expertise that I think uh, Monzo could benefit from as they continue to scale. Now, it's it's not a secret that the, the Chinese government uh, essentially requires private companies to comply with certain data um, controls and visibilities. Um, but, you know, Monzo doesn't operate in China, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge. So I, I don't think that um, too many people have to be concerned about, you know, the implications of that. Um, apart from that, you know, just like on a dollar by dollar basis, Tencent are probably amongst the smartest investors uh, in the world in technology. 
And I, I would not hesitate uh, to you know, have them on, on my cap table if it represented a strategic interest. Um, they have much, much deeper pockets than the amount that they have invested in Monzo now. And you know, from a business perspective, um, this is a very long game. Uh, there are lots of competitors coming into this space who are willing to literally set money on fire to grow users. Um, I, I think it's a pretty uh, well-considered choice. Now, that being said, I, I do think people are right to be asking the types of questions that I, I think we're asking this conversation. Uh, but I think it's important to, to note that clear distinction and where the, the data uh, concerns come from and what systems are in place around that. Very interesting. Because we've seen... Um... We've seen Tencent taking stakes in a number of digital banks around the world, haven't we? You know, like uh, Quanto in France and so on. But also, they've invested in uh, banks in in places like South Africa with Challenger Bank, Time, and so on. Um, I yeah. believe, actually, Naspers, which is a publicly traded uh, holding company in South Africa, I think is the largest shareholder uh, in Tencent. <laughs> so I, I would I would argue that it's, it's a South African company, not a Chinese company. That's actually making my investment. <laughs> I think I think that's right, and I think I think didn't didn't it's the value of its ten cent stake was considerably greater than the value of Naspers overall, which yeah, one, at various points <laughs> Naspers was rated by shareholders to be um, negative. <laughs> <laughs> um, Abba, what's your what's your thinking on on Monzo? Monzo has taken perhaps a little bit of a beating from the fintech community over the sort of past couple of years because it sort of seemed to have maybe lost its luster a little bit it was always the kind of the poster child of uk fintech and then maybe some other firms have you know shone more brightly over the last year or two do you think this is do you think monzo is going to sort of bounce back and and um you know re- really regain its mojo yes it's super interesting and like like our previous story was starling right and I, I don't think there's any doubt that like starling has overtaken monzo um not in customer numbers but like in term in terms of like like uh, kind of media profile and like like the new uh, fast growing uh, kind of sexy bank, like good on them. Like they had the hottest brand in fintech, and they've had to double down and like you know relook at ops and like their internal processes and like spend spend that money hard on marketing and brand and. And get back to where you uh, were, because I think they're now in a st- in, a, in a state where the revenue will um, the revenue will come. They've got the business model that's sitting behind it. I mean, I think Deeper raises a really interesting point about Tencent and and like like Monte have like deeply invested in their, in their community, right? Uh, and like care, or, or have at least professed to care what their customers think. And I think probably the best example recently of you know, how customers care about an investor was uh, was Oatly um, and Blackstone, right? So right outside of the um, of fintech arena. But, you know, like we're the most like coolest, caring, organicist um, oat milk in the world. And we're going to take our money from Blackstone who burn all the rainforests and, you know, you know, invest in all the oil. And their customers gave a shit about it. They were like... You can't, you can't say what you say and then take the money. So I think, and you know, and Oli had a good repast to that, and they explained why. And I think as long as Monzo are transparent about this, and I think like Weezer, you should probably like do a little um, like memo to their PR team because the way you described it was like super excellent. Um, but they should be transparent about it and say why and what they're going to do with the money because otherwise they they maybe do risk a bit of a customer backlash that says hello all the data to China. That's a really, really interesting point. Well, two, two interesting points about one is the, the customer reaction and the other one is, is what are they going to do with the money? Um, Deepa, have you looked at all at, at, at Monzo's intentions with this round, what their logical next steps are? Abba made the interesting point about you know revenue because, of course, Monzo was quite dependent on card interchange, uh, which um, obviously dried up a little bit during the, the, the pandemic. Um, any thoughts on where they might go with this money? Yeah, so there's been lots of speculation, obviously. Um, so one of the, the key kind of focus areas is, uh, well, I guess has to be a path to profitability and kind of doubling down on on how they're going to bring those revenue streams in. I think the other one that's kind of been speculated around is, um, I think it has been discussed in the news, is retail investing. 
So obviously seen a huge kind of growth in this area. Um, I think UK consumers posted the highest rise in the world of those likely to invest. So I think it was something like 40% pre-pandemic and now it's something crazy like 60, uh, circa 60%. So it feels like a very ripe area for someone like a Monzo to come in and, um, and you know, bring a product to market, which really uh, matches with that customer base. Um, but I think a really key piece for them would be really kind of focusing on what those key offerings are, how do they really return a path to profitability and how they kind of build their core customer base. Weezer, am I right? Did you, I think you mentioned earlier, you said you were a customer of Monzo. Yep. Um, what, is there anything you'd like to see Monzo, Monzo investing in, as a, just speaking as a, as, a, as a customer? Anything you'd like to see them adding to their proposition? Yeah, so because I don't spend the bulk of my time uh, in the UK, there's a, like, a lot of like international traveler context specific features that I would love. But like, you know, I'm just really, really happy with the experience. I think they go a long way in educating the user about what their rights are. I have to agree with ABBA around like, I think it's, it's strategically smart to not, um, to perhaps not announce that 10 cents coming in because a lot of people are not really informed about uh, how it actually works when a Chinese company invests money in you. And there's a lot of sinophobia um, that is uh, uh, exacerbated by the media. So I think they could do like a better job of like explaining what this investment means and more importantly, what it doesn't mean so that their customers like myself can continue to have uh, the high degree of comfort that we have today. I don't know what you mean about the the media exacerbating fears of anything. <laughs> that, that, that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> Okie dokie. Um, we are coming up uh, to the middle of the show. So we're just going to take a quick pause here um, while you hear from our sponsors. And we will be back very shortly. If you've been in payments for any length of time, you've seen the number of payment solutions explode. That's great for consumers, but incredibly complex for merchants and developers. That's where Primer comes in. Primer is the world's first automation platform for payments. With Primer, merchants and developers have all the underlying infrastructure and Lego blocks they need to build the best buying experiences for their customers. Learn more and book a demo at Primer.io. So our next story is that Habito is offering mortgages for up to seven times a person's salary. This was reported in various media, um, including This Is Money. So mortgage uh, disruptor Habito, where ABBA works, uh, has changed the terms of its Habito One product to allow certain types of borrower a much larger loan to income ratio. Usually banks allow borrowing of up to about four and a half times the applicant's combined salaries. Borrowers must agree to fix their interest rate for the full term of the mortgage between 10 and 40 years. Individuals uh, will we'll have to earn a minimum basic salary of £25,000 and work in one of the following professions, and I've got a long list, firefighter, nurse, paramedic, doctor, police, so basically all heroes, um, accountant, barrister, teacher, another hero, engineer, lawyer, dentist, architect, surveyor or vet. Um, interests on Interest rates on the mortgage start at 2.99%. Um, Abba, we're going to come to you first on this. Can you give us a little bit of a breakdown of sort of how this works in practice and, and why this was the right time to, to launch? You sort of launched between Christmas and New Year, which is traditionally quite a quiet time. Um, what was some of your thinking behind this? Yeah, so we launched our original long-term fixed mortgage in March last year, which is called Habito One. Um, so that's much more like an American uh, mortgage product where instead of having to like bet on Bank of England interest rates over the like next two or five years, you basically buy your house, say you're going to pay it off over 30 years and fix those payments for every month of those 30 years. So totally stable. So it's a super innovative product to the UK, but not, you know, like those exist in Sweden and, and Holland and, um, and the US. So they're not so innovative across the world. And we are very like passionate about the fact that like, it's kind of crazy to ask your average um, UK customer to speculate on what Bank of England interest rates are going to do over the next 10 to 15 to 20 years, right? It's nuts, right? Even the Bank of England don't uh, uh, publish um, forecasts on the interest rate, right? So it's like, you know, people barely with the GCSE maths are asking to do this. It's like, it's not cool. So that's why we launched it originally. And um, then what we realised when we launched it um, is that 
the very nature of um, being a long-term fixed mortgage means that we don't have to stress test people's income in the same way that a short-term fixed mortgage does. A short-term fixed mortgage has to say to you, what if interest rates really go up? Are you still going to be able to afford it? Because although you may have got like a two-year introductory deal, you're still borrowing money for 25 years and you and you need to be good for it. Um, and that's where we realized we had this opportunity to lend people more money. Um, and when you look at it, like, I mean, the economics of the house price of that of the housing market in the UK are like nuts. So house prices have risen 29 times more than wages in the last 50 years. Right? It's like houses are not, you know, they're accelerating way ahead of our, of our incomes. In London, on average, the price of a home is 11 times your income. So people are priced out of the of the market just by the rules that we've kind of constructed about how much you can lend, which are different to how much people can afford. And so what we've done is put together a mortgage that says, we're going to lend you as much as you can afford. Has this been difficult to communicate, you know, as, as a marketer? Because I noticed that, you know, some of the media coverage has been more about how, well, you know, you're fueling a new housing boom, um, that you're going to be the cause of the next great recession. Um, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but only a little bit. That, that, that you know, you're no, lending people too much you're money. You're exaggerating a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, has, I mean, has this been difficult to communicate as a marketer, or do you think that people are getting the message and understanding what you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I guess like at the moment we, we, as you said, we launched on the 26th of uh, December, um, which may sound a bit crazy, um, but it's the biggest day for house price searches. So it's right moves biggest day of the year because it's the day where you're like, I'm not having Christmas with your mother-in-law again in this house, or we need to get a garden this year, or I'm leaving you, or, you know, all those kind of like cauldron of Christmas emotions that like get you on to right move and start looking for houses. Um, So we kind of coincided it with that. I I guess we didn't predict that the media would pick up on it as much as they um, have done. But yeah, it's designed to coincide with people's like house price, like house search journey. Like how much can I borrow? What can I, um, what can I afford? Um, So kind of getting into their kind of front of mind uh, journey. Is it, is it easy to communicate? Um, I th- from the media, no. Um, from hopefully what you'll see from our advertising campaign, which kicks off in two weeks' time, yes. Um, so we're very excited that this product is going to kick into touch forevermore the concept of a property ladder. Because the concept of a property ladder only really exists in the UK, where you've got to buy like a starter home and then a medium home and then a forever home. And then and then part of the problem with the housing ladder in the UK is that people never sell their forever home. So they're, you know, they're in the 70s and 80s and living off their big pensions and still living in like a four-bedroomed house that they just don't need anymore, which is, you know, like stagnating the property stock so that the younger people who want to have a family and, and, and buy that, that, that perfect forever home can't get onto the ladder. So this is the idea is that you just, just knock out the idea of having to buy the flat to buy the home. We're going to lend you the money for the home from the from the get-go, and then you're not going to have to pay the remortgaging costs. You're not going to have to pay multiple stamp duty charges um, every time you buy a new house. No more legal costs. One home, forever, one fixed price. Really interesting. What's what's your take on this, uh, Deepa? Do you think this is do you think this is genuinely disruptive? Do you think this starts to potentially starts to change the market. I mean, this is kind of what disruptors are meant to do, right? Come in with new products, new propositions. Um, what's your view as a product expert? Um, well, as a uh, as a recent home buyer, I'm very excited because I've had a, a not so pleasant experience over the last year. And I think the whole process is ridiculous. And um, saying it's right for disruption is the understatement of the century, I think. Um, so I, I, so I love this. I think this is really exciting. And everybody I speak to has a tale to tell about buying and moving home. So absolutely love this. Um, I also think I totally agree with the, the point around disruption. Um, this is what disruption is all about. I think it's one of those things where I think I read somewhere that lots of mortgage algorithms haven't been updated for decades, which seems 
absolutely ludicrous given the change in our working lives, given the change in culture. Um, and as Abba mentioned, the, the kind of wage inflation versus home price inflation, like it just doesn't, it doesn't reflect reality. And I think it was about time that we kind of, those two things map out. Um, so really, really excited to see this. And I, I really hope that this is the start of a, a kind of trickle down effect where we start to see more um, different types of kind of mortgage applications and products and services start to also reflect the change that we're seeing over the last few years. It's a really interesting point about sort of outdated credit models and outdated sort of ways of looking at people and their incomes and so on. Um, Weezer, I'm interested, are you seeing more uh, imaginative approaches to sort of credit scoring in some of them, some of the different markets you're working in? I mean, so, you know, in markets like the UK and the US, you know, they tend to be sort of very old credit rating systems that haven't changed in decades and probably should. Are you seeing countries, other countries developing more more thoughtful credit scoring mechanisms? Yeah, so the vast majority of countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, except South Africa, have no credit infrastructure whatsoever. Um, congrats on your new home, Deepa. It's very, very difficult for anyone in Africa to even remotely consider that. Um, in Nigeria, if you're renting a flat, you pay your rent a year upfront because your landlord uh, cannot trust that you'll be able to pay it on a month-to-month -month basis. So we've seen a lot of innovation in East Africa um, with credit scoring based off of transaction data and uh, behavioral economics that can be inferred from the device, such as like your location. If you go to like a regular you know, home or work and stuff, they're able to like infer that. And quite a number of businesses have been successful in building credit models on top of that. But a lack of regulation meant that a number of uh, unsavory actors were able to come in with really, really ridiculous uh, interest rates when annualized that people were not um, very educated about. So what happened for many East Africans is that, you know, they got credit for the first time through an app on their phone and they didn't realize how much interest they need to pay. They failed to pay and now they're like blacklisted. So uh, at least for East Africa, the entire uh, uh, industry needs to start afresh. Thankfully, there is now progressive regulation coming in and we can fill, fill those gaps. Uh, in, in Nigeria and West Africa more broadly, we're starting to see some common sense approaches because it's been, this type of innovation is being led by banks and then they're just using mobile as a distribution layer. But it's still certainly like very, very early days. And, you know, when I was hearing Abba talking about like uh, the housing ladder, it's like, wow, people buy more than one home. Like my mind blew. <laughs> I was like, that's incredible. <laughs> Just to give you an indication uh, of how uh, early we are. So I think things are definitely getting better, but uh, there's, there's quite a long way to go before uh, we're anywhere near as mature as uh, the rest of the world. Excellent. Thank you. Well, congratulations, Abba, um, on this super interesting move. And um, I wish you and happy to every every success with it to disrupt and improve um, the UK mortgage and housing markets. Okay, let's move on to our uh, next story. Uh, this comes from TechCrunch, and this is that fintechs in Africa continue to overshadow all other startups in funding gained. So 2021 saw more and bigger deals closed in Africa as tech startups across the continent raised close to $5 billion dollars um, according to a report by the market insights firm um, Brighter Bridges. This amount was double the previous year's investments and nine times what was raised um, a mere five years ago. Fintechs dominated the fundraising, accounting for nearly $3 billion out of the $5 billion, two-thirds of all the investment um, raised by startups across the continent last year. Among the largest beneficiaries of the fintech capital were Opay, which raised $400 million in Series C funding, Flutterwave, which got $170 million in a Series C round, and Timebank, which raised $180 million in Series B. Um, so Africa is now regarded as the world's second fastest growing and profitable payments and banking market after Latin, Latin America, according to McKinsey. So Weezer, we're going to come to you first on this. As you know, someone who's part of uh, sort of Africa's fintech scene, does this funding report reflect what you're seeing on the ground? Um, and, and, you know, how has the conversation with international investors sort of changed compared with a, with a few years ago? Yeah, certainly. I think um, I'm fortunate enough to be extremely well positioned in the uh, tech ecosystem here. 
So, for example, I know um, all of the leadership at all of the startups that you mentioned personally, as well as the person who wrote the TechCrunch article, as well as the person who wrote the Brighter Bridges report, just to give you like a sense <laughs> of how, one, the ecosystem is very small, and two, we're all speaking to each other, which I think is absolutely wonderful. Um, what was missing before was uh, demonstrated liquidity events uh, in the form of exits. So previously, uh, you know, people were like curious about Africa, cutting small checks here and there, a couple million here, a couple million there. And, you know, oftentimes the conversations that would have with investors would be like, yeah, but you, you talk about all this growth, you talk about all these unbanked, you talk about all this like mobile money that's exploding. But like, you know, what does that mean for me as an investor? Where are the exits? And um, I think one of the greatest things to ever happen for the ecosystem was the acquisition of uh, Paystack, a Nigerian startup uh, by global payments giant Stripe for about $200 million, I think. It must have been two years ago, two or three years ago. And that um, uh, a liquidity event of that pedigree really changed the tone uh, of the conversation and as far as investors were concerned. And more and more investors started taking Africa more seriously. And uh, I think fintech right now globally uh, has quite a bit of uh, glamour attached to it, which makes it very easy to... Uh, make decisions about whether or not you want to invest in a company. So definitely it is happening. Uh, the tone has changed. We're going to see a lot more uh, investment growth over the next few years. Uh, if you look at the investment stats for Southeast Asia over the last 10 years, you'll see that Africa is tracking very closely um, on a like minus four year, five year basis. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's actually quite uncanny uh, how things are going. I personally am quite delighted because there's a lot of opportunity that's being unlocked. There's a lot of access. Um, there's a lot of intra-Africa trade which takes place that's not captured in the formal economic systems today. And a lot of this trade is being intermediated by global currencies such as the US dollar and the British pound. And like this technology layers that are being introduced are allowing Africans to trade with each other using their own currencies. And, you know, for, for a continent of uh, over a billion people, that's uh, the implications speak for themselves. So, so you're saying this is really a change in perception from international investors about Africa. It's not really a change in the opportunity available. The opportunity has always been there. Yeah. Or, you know, it's that investors have suddenly realized, oh, wow, this opportunity is bigger than we thought. And there's a, an exit path because when companies like Stripe start acquiring businesses, there's a really promising opportunity. Yeah, the opportunity has definitely always been there. And I think the, the banking industry, um, you know, African banks, the traditional banks, the, the, the profit margins can be quite incredible. Banks and telecoms were the first uh, sector of verticals to realize this. And for a very long time, um, telecoms operators dominated both communications uh, and mobile financial services. Uh, I think MTN Group is probably the largest uh, mobile money operator on the continent today. If you look at their annual results from last year, their financial services unit, I think, uh, clocked in a revenue of almost 700, if not $800 million um, on today's uh, exchange rate. So it, it's really quite exciting. And, you know, it's great that the opportunity has been democratized now, um, founders can come in, capitalize a business and, 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 you know, give it a shot. It's really difficult and expensive to even get started. The licenses, you know, in the UK or in, in Europe, rather, if, if you get licensed um, from one regulator, you're typically able to operate across the entire Eurozone. Uh, in Africa, you're doing each and every country one by one. So it was very, very difficult to before. And now that we have uh, some, some clear examples, I think the trend is only going to continue. And uh, this is only the start I mean, there's so much more that has to be done. And, and in my view, over the next 10, 20 years, probably this is the biggest financial services uh, opportunity globally. We've seen, I mean, a lot, of the, a lot of the activity in Africa, as you said, in the past has been about sort of mobile money and so on. But we're seeing all sorts of other opportunities opening up now. Um, Deepa, Abba, you know, obviously you're outsiders like like me, but do you are you seeing interesting opportunities in Africa? Are there parts, you know, things that you've seen coming out of the continent that you think are super interesting? Or is that an unfair? That may be an unfair question. I'm putting you slightly on the spot there. <laughs> I mean, no, I think if if you take South America as as like an interesting like precursor to what's going to happen in Africa, so like if you take my market mortgages, you couldn't borrow your money to buy a house. Um, in many countries in South America, until really up until 15 years 
um, ago. So like kind of debt innovation and lending um, innovation uh, is is a huge market, potential market um, in uh, well in, in South America. It's growing and, and, and Africa is going to follow. So, yeah, excited to see that there's going to be so many players come come into that market. Maybe us one day. I was going to say something similar on the uh, the lending front as well. I think what's really interesting is that um, I guess we said to what you were to your point around the infrastructure. It's a, you're seeing lots of players build their own tech stack. So instead of having reliability on kind of the infrastructure that exists to be able to build their own tech stack and kind of lift and shift that, it's a it's a scalable model. And then you start to I mean then the opportunity across the continent is is kind of uh, is huge. One of the things that always got me excited about fintech is the opportunity to really make a difference to people's lives. And, you know, it's one thing to offer sort of marginally better convenience of doing something on a smartphone to, you know, to a sort of rich sort of Westerner or whatever. It's quite another to um, bring people who've been excluded from the financial system in and, and sort of open up new opportunities. With this, you know, with this sort of growing amount of capital going into fintech in Africa, do you think is this mostly benefiting sort of already wealthy people in sort of Lagos or Nairobi or Johannesburg or, or Cairo or wherever? Or um, are we really starting to see investment actually making a, li- a difference to the lives of, of people in you know smaller smaller sort of towns and villages across Africa? Is this just a sort of urban thing, or is this actually benefiting all Africans? Do you think? So I think it's definitely like a mix of both. I think a lot of startups start with the um, luxury segment, smartphone owners, et cetera, because it's easy to access. But some of the more established players are actually able to render really interesting products, especially around credit, especially targeting business people. Um, There are a lot of uh, people in Africa who are business people who uh, need cash flow uh, augmentation tools. And you see players like MFS Africa who uh, have quite an extensive reach uh, into this space. And these are people who have like recurring regular activity that you can uh, easily capitalize on. So I think, you know, um, those stories aren't as glamorous, but so they don't get captured as much, especially in the global mainstream media. But the impact is very clear. And in many sub-Saharan African countries, you're never far away from a MoMA money agent. Kenya has 160,000 of them today. Like, it's actually quite ridiculous. Um, Uganda and Ghana have similar numbers, and it's really quite exciting to see. Um, One thing that I did want to mention on the fundraising that uh, displeases me greatly is that there's a very massive gender imbalance problem. I mean, on a continent where more than 50% of the population is women, it doesn't make sense that um, about... I think the stats that I'm looking at, the brightest stats are great and accurate, but there's also stats from uh, The Big Deal, which is like an indie uh, project ran by, by, by two very, very passionate folks on the ecosystem. Well, less than 1% uh, of the funds that were being raised this year um, were raised by uh, women-led only teams. So you've got like a woman founder, but like if it's all women, all of a sudden like it's like less than 1%. And I think that's like horrible. And I think that's one thing that I hope the African ecosystem doesn't inherit from other parts uh, of the world, because uh, women in Africa make far better entrepreneurs than men. And there are countless studies that verify this. I'm not even going to get into a conversation about it. I think it's really important to note. And, um, you know, the capital structures have to be there to support women fund managers so that women entrepreneurs can get more access to capital as well. Very well said. Um probably should let the two women on the, on the call speak. Sorry, I mean, obviously, I, I totally agree. Um, I think this is a, it's a widespread issue. So I, I found a stat that said, um, actually, the number of female founders, so we're not even talking about, fem- you know, a whole uh, or entire female teams, just female founders in fintechs are around 7%, which also just feels mad. And I, I love your point around not inheriting that. Um Obviously, there's a, you know there's lots of conversations around uh, the leapfrog effect and and how uh, there's a real divergence in fintech in Africa from the Western models, which is great. And I, I love that point around not kind of inheriting this as a as a kind of um, hangover. Okay, we we need to move on. However, I think um, a we need to have a, a fintech insider deep dive on how we improve the gender balance in fintech across all continents because. 
doesn't seem like there is a country or a continent that is a real exemplar of how to improve gender balance. Um, and we also need to have a fintech insider uh, special on African fintech because we're not talking enough about all the amazing things that are going on in Africa. Okay, so now we need to move on to the part of the show where we quickly round up a few of the other stories um, from the week that we don't have um, time to cover but still deserve a shout out. Uh, Deepa, do you want to get us started? Sure. So Dutch financial services firm ING has announced that it's set to discontinue its French retail banking operations. The company launched ING France in 2000 as an online bank, and it currently claims around 1 million customers and provides current accounts, mortgages, consumer lending and investment products. ING France employs around 700 staff with 460 people working in retail banking. ING is currently in discussions with third parties as it explores the feasibility of an agreement for its client portfolio. They've added that we have decided to exit the French retail market, sharpening the focus of our business portfolio on where we can better scale. So lots of change in the French retail banking space here. So HSBC sold its French retail bank in June last year, and Socgen presented a complete merger of the Credit du Nord and their retail networks, aiming to serve about 10 million clients um, with 25,000 employees by 2025. So it does feel like it's a real kind of consolidation of the market. Um, we're seeing that BMP, Credit Agricole and Socgen have all posted really strong performances since COVID. So it'll be interesting to see how next year pans out. Benjamin, back to you. Sad. ING Direct was sort of the original European uh, banking disruptor, but uh, it's a couple of decades ago. Okay, so our next story comes from Forbes, and this is that Hong Kong fintech unicorn WeLab is to enter the increasingly crowded Indonesian digital banking market. So WeLab is a fintech unicorn startup based in Hong Kong, and it's planning to launch a digital bank in Indonesia in the second half of this year, following its $240 million deal to buy a controlling stake in Bank Jasa Jakarta. Um, many traditional banks and tech companies have moved into Indonesia's growing market. It's one of the largest, uh, most populous countries in the world. Simon Lung, the co-founder and CEO of WeLab, believes the Indonesian digital banking market has room to grow and the fierce competition is good for the market. Digital banking in Indonesia is growing rapidly, according to a recent report by McKinsey. Around 78% of Indonesians in its survey last year are active users of at least one digital bank, up from 57% in 2017. And WeLab is also eyeing going public later this year after it completes the acquisition and consolidation. So I think this is a super interesting story. Uh, Indonesia is a young, fast-growing country, lots of young people. It's incredibly diverse, obviously. Um, And there's a lot of innovation going on there. We're seeing a lot of companies um, moving into Indonesia. It's got some startups of its own. Um, It's a really, really interesting um, and fast-growing market. I'm sure WeLab will have a lot of success and been successful in Hong Kong. So really looking forward to seeing how that proposition um, develops. Um, super interesting market. Okay, deeper back to you. So Ribbit Capital, a venture firm best known for its fintech investments, has raised $1.15 billion in new capital in what appears to be a close of its seventh fund, according to a filing with the US SEC. The new fund, dubbed Ribbit Capital VIILP, is more than double the $420 million it raised in its sixth fund in January 2020. Since its 2012 inception, Ribbit Capital has previously raised about $1.3 billion in capital, according to Crunchbase. It has invested and seen exits in what are some of the world's largest fintechs today, including Coinbase, Newbank, Affirm and Robinhood. 2021 was a busy year for Ribbit, which also made a number of investments in Latin America, even leading several deals in the region. So very exciting news for Ribbit. Ribbit Capital hasn't explicitly said which fintech sectors or geographies it will target, but B2B crypto firms may be part of the strategy, and Fintech Insider hears that Africa may also be a target geography. Ribbit Capital's previous investments in crypto firms like Coinbase and CoinSwitch suggest that it might target the space again, and given the competition space incumbents, cryptos and challenges, it will be an interesting year ahead. And if, I, if I'm right, both of our guests are at firms that Rivet has, has invested in in the past. Is that correct? So I'm getting one nod. One nod, two nods. Absolutely. Two nods. <laughs> <laughs> yes, fantastic correct. Okay, so let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. Um, so we had a story about ING Direct pulling the plug in France. And this story is from Sky News, which is about BlackBerry, the end of an era as the company pulls the plug on the iconic handsets. So BlackBerry phones, which were once the pinnacle of a mobile handset, are effectively dead as the Canadian company behind them pulls its support. 
The company warned on its website that the iconic devices, which it hasn't made since 2016, will no longer reliably function from the 4th of January, including for calls and texts. In a blog post, the company said, When we started WhatsApp in 2009, people's use of mobile devices looked very different from today. The Apple App Store was only a few months old. About 70% of smartphones sold at the time had operating systems offered by BlackBerry and Nokia. The company itself transitioned to a security software business by 2016. However, it decided to continue maintaining its software as an expression of thanks to loyal partners and customers who appreciated its physical keyboard as well as its security features. Wow. Um, see, it does seem like the end of an era. Um, maybe I'm, maybe I'm the only guest old enough to remember Blackberries really well, but <laughs> my pan, my fellow panelists, those of you who can't see this, my fellow panelists are blessed with greater youth than I am. Um, what do you all make of this story? I was addicted to my Blackberry. This is very sad. Um, from my, from my perspective anyway. I also think it's an interesting story. A lot of, you know, we describe the strategic errors of a Kodak, for example, not seeing digital photography. I don't think, um, if you look back um, on what BlackBerry did, I don't think that management team made big strategic errors. I think they were killed by the brilliance um, in the and the innovation and the you know sheer bloody mindedness um, of Apple to take on this market. So from that perspective, I feel. I feel sadder because I, I don't think the management team did their business a disservice. I think they just met a better business. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I recall the BlackBerry Curve 8520, which must have been like the most popular BlackBerry uh, of its time. And literally everyone was on BBM. And the reason that I got a BlackBerry uh, for the time that I had one was because I wanted to be able to instantly message my friends all the time. Um, apart from Apple's um, entrance to the market, I also think that like the general reduction of uh, the cost of data and the availability uh, of data on ordinary GSM handsets played a very, very big role. I can't speak to the UK, but around the BlackBerry era was the time that a lot of uh, African mobile network operators were switching from like dial-up to like, you know, GPRS, Edge, and, and in some countries, 3G. And I was like, oh, you don't actually need to have a BlackBerry to have internet all the time. And then enter the, the instant messaging era that eventually was uh, swept up by what is now WhatsApp. Um, you know, I think the the industry evolved a lot faster than the management team had the ability to react to. And they also, it, I don't think they ever like built it to be a mass market product. It was targeted towards like a sophisticated consumer who's on the go and needs to use a QWERTY keyboard. Um, but certainly I would agree with uh, what Abba shared earlier. Uh, if I was to summarize it, I would say that it is the touch screen uh, which has killed BlackBerry today. I also completely agree. Um, I think the other thing is that they really hung on to their proprietary um, kind of applications. And actually, if you look at Apple today, it's it, it's not the Apple or iMessage feature. You know, it, you've got the integratability. Um, I also agree with that, you know, th there was a pivot there. It just unfortunately came a little bit too too uh, too late. But I'm certainly heartbroken because uh, the, the curve was also one of my favorite phones and certainly defined an error. Weezer, I love your point that it was the touchscreen um, that that killed killed BlackBerry. But I'm tempted to say it was the ecosystem that killed BlackBerry because what Apple did, and I completely agree with you, Abba, that that Apple was brilliant. But what Apple did was it made it 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 made it very attractive for others to build on their platform, and that platform and that ecosystem was what ultimately made Apple devices. And subsequently, Android devices so compelling. So, Weezer, I'm going to challenge you. Do you was it was it the touch screen, or was it the touch screen and the ecosystem? Um, yeah, I uh, think it's what the touch screen enabled right now. Because then you could, you know, create Flappy Bird and like have people play a game like that. So, yeah, it's definitely a combination of factors, and it's sad to, to see BlackBerry go. Um, yeah, uh, I wish I wish them all the best for the future. Indeed. Okay. Well, we're out of time. So uh, we shall wrap up the, the news. Um, 
So thank you so much to today's guest. It's been brilliant having you on the show. Um, where can people uh, find out a little bit more about you? So let's go uh, ladies first. So uh, Abba? Um, you can follow uh, me on uh, LinkedIn as Abba Newbury or Habito on LinkedIn. Otherwise, I'm Peckham79 um, on Twitter um, and it's Habito Mortgages on Instagram. Uh, Deepa? I'm on LinkedIn as Deepanakindi and 11FS.com. Uh, Weezer? Uh, I'm at WeezerJ on Twitter. So Weezer as in my first name and J as in the initial of my last name. And that's by far the best way to reach me. I tweet a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and as for me, I'm Benjamin Ensor, and you can uh, find me on LinkedIn or on 11FS.com. So thank you all very much uh, for listening. It's been a pleasure. And um, I hope all of you listeners will join the conversation on social media or uh, email us at podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much and goodbye.